Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. Sam Liebens is Associate Professor in the Philosophy Department at the University of Haifa. He is also an Orthodox Rabbi and Jewish educator. His first book was a study of Bertrand Russell's evolving theories about the nature of meaning. His second book is a study in the analytic philosophy of Judaism. Sam's academic interests span the philosophy of religion, metaphysics, epistemology, and the philosophy of language. He is also the co-founder and served as the founding chair of the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism. He studied for his PhD at Birkbeck College, University of London, and completed postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Notre Dame and at Rutgers University. As a rabbi and Jewish educator, Sam regularly teaches at the Drisha Institute for Jewish Education. Sam is also adjunct faculty at the Pardis Institute for Jewish Studies and has been a scholar-in-residence for numerous communities around the world. He studied at Yeshivat HaKotel, Yeshivat HaMiftar, and Yeshivat Har Etzion before attaining his rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Zalman Nehemiah Goldberg. Without further ado, Sam Liebens. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Dr. Liebens, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name's Sam. It's nice to meet you. Um, I got born and raised in England, and I'm now a uh, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Haifa. So professionally, I, I'm a philosopher, an academic philosopher, um, and, and I'm, I, I don't even exclusively work on Jewish philosophy in my, in my professional life. I, I work in a tradition known as analytical philosophy. My PhD was on Bertrand Russell and his philosophy of language. I have a book coming out this autumn on the philosophy of fiction that I co-authored with a, uh, an Irish-German philosopher called Tatiana von Sodkov. And, um, and that's one piece of my life, so to speak, my professional philosophical career. I'm also uh, striving to be a religious Jew. And um, and I have smicha from Zaman Nehemiah Goldberg. And I was in various yeshivot over the years, yeshivat hakotel, yeshivat hamivtar, and yeshivat haritzion is where I ended up in in, in the gush. Um, so I also try to combine in my my life, my, my Judaism and my academic interests, um, philosophy and religion, rabbinics and philosophy. That's basically in a nutshell who I am for these purposes. That sounds like a lot of fun. To <laughs> yeah. be very honest. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, it, it is fun from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. So for for all the listeners, uh, we want to highly recommend Dr. Lieben's book, A Guide for the Jewish Undecided, as you can see over Thank here. You. Really an amazing book, such a unique really uh, book. And uh, we want to start off by asking you, like, what motivated you to write this book and which philosophical arguments do you employ to approach the challenging subject of faith and religion? All right. So there's a there are two stories I could tell here. There's a there's the kind of L'Shem Shemaim story and the the Lo L'Shem Shemaim story. Uh, um, the the Lo L'Shem Shemaim story is as follows. You know, I as told you, I'm an academic philosopher. And um, in the early days of, of one's career, it's very, very difficult to find steady employment as an academic in the humanities anywhere in the world, especially in in Israel, which is where uh, my wife and I, our hearts were settled upon. And um, 
I was very fortunate to receive a grant from the Templeton World Charity Foundation, who liked some of the work I was doing at the intersection of philosophy and religion. And they were going to sponsor my first three years at the University of Haifa, which ended up becoming my tenure track position. And I eventually got tenure and it was a very important uh, deal that I managed to secure this funding from Templeton. And I promised them two books. I promised them an academic book on academic Jewish philosophy. And I promised them a book that would be a little bit more accessible to the wider public. Uh, the first of those two books uh, was published with Oxford University Press. It's called The Principles of Judaism, written for a very academic audience. And then I, I had to write something popular. <laughs> In fact, my son was like, Dad, you can't, you can't call this a popular book because he thought popular meant like lots of people like it. He said, that's for other people to decide if it's popular. Uh, but I mean, popular is in non-academic. Um, I had to write one. So I had to just sit down and find, wow, what am I going to write that? And, and in a sense, it was that that created this book. I, I had the funding and I made a promise. I had to, that's the L'Oshem Shemaim story. But the L'Oshem Shemaim story is no less true, which is that A, I did want to communicate some of what I've been learning and thinking about and studying and developing. I did want to communicate that in a way that would be more accessible. I don't think the guide to the Jewish undecided, by the way, is an easy read. I, you know, um, I hope people enjoy it, you know, but um, if I was reading it and I hadn't written it, I'd imagine I'd have to read one or two of the chapters a couple of times, or at least one or two of the paragraphs a couple of times. You know, it's it's not an easy read, but I tried to make it accessible. I tried to explain it, explain things as clearly as I possibly could. I wanted to do that. Also, I grew up in um, English orthodoxy. English is in England, right? Um, and Anglo-Orthodoxy is, is quite um, peculiar. It's not unique because I think it's similar in Canada and similar in, in Australia, various Commonwealth com countries, South Africa, is where you get lots of people who are not observant at all who define themselves as Orthodox. In fact, uh, Rabbi Joseph Dweck mentioned to me that that's a more universal story among Sephardim. Right. Because because in many Sephardi countries, there wasn't a threat of the reform movement or the conservative movement. Normative Judaism was halachic. It's just you were either more or less observant. But there weren't kind of uh, a multiplicity of Judaisms to pick to, to pick and choose between. There was, you know, uh, traditional halachic Judaism um, in in Anglo-Ashkenazi Judaism, that was very much the same. So we would drive to an Orthodox shul most weeks and hide the car a couple of blocks away and like walk the last couple of blocks. We used to duck when we drove past the rabbi, right? Because we didn't want the rabbi to see us driving on, on Shabbat. That was, that was um, Anglo-Orthodoxy. And it struck me in the writing of this book that that's philosophically, that's actually quite an interesting um, position to be in where you feel an allegiance to a religion that you don't fully observe or fully believe in or fully have faith in and I, I think I was exploring some of the philosophical ramifications of, a, of of that sort of identity I thought that was just an interesting project and that's part of what this book was too that's the Jewish undecided the Jewish undecided is someone says look I'm proud to be because Funny story is I 
I gave this book to President Herzog. He he was walking through a book sale in Jerusalem and I saw him and I grabbed my opportunity and I gave him a copy of the book and the photo was taken and he was kind enough to post on his Instagram account a picture of him uh-huh. holding my book, which was really nice. Um, but the first thing he said to me was, what, there's a, there's, there are Jews who are undecided? <laughs> like with, with all these going through in Israel, you know, it's like <laughs> Jews, are, Jews have made up their mind about everything. Right? You can't find an undecided <laughs> Jew. But all, all I meant was, no, there are lots of Jews who are very, very proud to be Jewish. They wouldn't think of like going to a church or a mosque or a, you know, a, a Gudwara or they're Jewish. And, and, uh, they may even be members of an orthodox shul, but but they'll eat treif and they'll watch TV on Shabbat. And they'll in and it's that kind of undecided in that in that um they haven't yet decided to be observant, but they haven't completely ruled that option out. And I think the ways in which they haven't completed that completely ruled that option out is manifest in the fact that they continue to want to pass this identity on to their children. They continue to be members of, of Orthodox institutions, let's say. Um, so that's, that's the Jewish undecided. And we, we really relate to that because we come from a community, the Mashadi community in Great Neck. It was very yeah. similar because um, I would say, you know, a good portion of people drive to Shul on Shabbat, to yeah. on Shabbat. And, um, you know, I don't think they're hiding, putting their head down, but in the shul, you know, there's they're not they're not bringing their phones. They're not yeah. you know, they're not they're putting them on silent at least, right? And they'd be embarrassed time. if they rang. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and and they take it very seriously. They take it very seriously. They take there's, it very seriously. Yeah. They're very proud of it. Is you know to be Zionist. There's there's kiddush yeah. the with their family, and you know there's a lot of lines in the sand that they that they draw that you know you can't cross those lines. Yeah, so they're very much yeah. respect. You know and they put Shabbat on a pedestal, but they just don't always observe um, thing. And, and it's a very unique thing because as you mentioned, the Sephardi uh, thing, you won't find many or any uh, reform Sephardi shuls. And it's very rare. Yeah. It's very rare. And my, um, like the row that we sit in, we have a guy to the left of us, maybe who drives on Shabbat. And then another guy Mm -hmm. to the right of us who is like a Chabadnik uh, Persian, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Persian Chabad. Yeah. yeah, But we're not, we're not, we're we're not united based on Hashkafa. We're united based on our cultural cultural background. Yeah. Unique. Yeah. And it's interesting. You're not even united on the practice that you keep in your own homes. It's just, you go to the same shul. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and the beauty of that is that a lot of ideas can live in the same place. It's Absolutely. Not, it's not like the other shuls are, you know, you have to think a certain way to be here. Otherwise, you, you just don't fit in. So that's really. It's kind and of- I like that as an as an Orthodox Jewish theologian. Right. So some Sephardim don't even like using the term Orthodox because they think, well, this is an Ashkenazi import or whatever. I I. I feel there is a, a virtue to that term because it explains that, you know, there are certain non-negotiable principles of faith. What's interesting is they can differ slightly from person to person and we're okay with that, right? So you're a theist, I'm a theist, but your positive conception of God and my positive conception of God could be quite different. You believe in Torah and mind, I believe in Torah and mind, but what exactly that means, there's a kind of flexibility in, in Orthodox Jewish theology that is, is hard to find in, in, in many religions. In, in Christianity, for example, you know, two churches will split 
over a minor minor difference in like metaphysics in you know in 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 their in their theology no we're just like you know we'll sit you know we can sit in the same shul we can sit you know do you believe in god yes we don't need to ask any more questions about what that means like do you, you know do you believe in revelation sometimes, so, um, sometimes I think that, that gives us a certain creativity or freedom to th to think through all the possibilities yeah when we had um rabbi mark angel on he made a funny joke that when two Ashkenazis get into an argument, they open three shuls, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, so in that, in that sense, I'm 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 more Sephardi, even though I'm Ashkenazi. And it's interesting, you, you first met me through the Chaburah that, 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 that yeah. I sometimes teach on, right? Which is uh, a product of uh, the Spanish-Portuguese community in, in Britain originally. Yes, all right. So your book opens with an extensive thesis of the concept of Jewish conversion. And I remember when I started reading, I was like, wait, huh? how does this go into Jewish Undecided? And, you know, it's actually an amazing chapter. Um, can you elaborate on the, your perspective of Jewish conversion, how it establishes and how it establishes the foundation for the rest of your book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I was mit la bet. I was like this, uh, um, I, I had, an internal debate as to whether to include that chapter at all. It's a long digression into the halacha of conversion, the midrashim that informed the halacha, shutim, like rabbinic response, you know, uh, after the Shulchan Aruch. And it, it's really quite um, detailed rabbinics, right? And the rest of the book's a philosophy book. Yes. And it almost felt like these two different, like, I, can you reconcile these projects? But it was important for me to include for a number of reasons. I can think of three off the top of my hand, my head. One's kind of political, which is that I don't like the direction that um, that some some people in places of rabbinic power have taken conversion. I think it's gone in directions that are out of kilter with the weight of the tradition, and and that's some, that's a political agenda I had, and it was almost an excuse to address that. Two is that. Um, and this is much more um, um, germane to, to the book, is that it really, this this discussion about conversion really does inform the philosophy of the book in, okay. it, biographically. This is truly how I came to think about Jewish epistemology. Epistemology is the study of belief and knowledge. The ways I came to think about Jewish epistemology were influenced by the ways I understood the sources to do with Jewish conversion. So even if it might not strike the uh, the reader of the book that this was necessary, biographically it was. It, it's it's what led me to the to the the thoughts that um, that the rest of the book unpacks. Um, I said I had three, and that was two, but that's enough. <laughs> you know, I suppose three is like I I I find it super interesting. You know, um, I, I I have always had a very deep respect and regard for converts to Judaism, for for sincere, you know, authentic converts to Judaism, and in a sense, that chapter is my celebration uh, of of those people, and uh, and. I've had a number of converts read the book and felt quite moved by it because in a sense, the book um, calls upon natural born Jews, native born Jews to emulate the convert in various respects. And, 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 you know, I think uh, the converts who have spoken to me having read the book um, appreciated that. So there you go. I gave you three. 
three reasons. And so it's it's almost like I think what you were just saying was is that by understanding what what um what is what we're looking for in the convert or the way that we structure with the convert is actually reflecting how we as Jews should be behaving and what we should exactly be towards exactly and you can give me become like a Jew very automatically by being born a Jew yes right but but. In when the rabbis articulate what it means for a Gentile to become a Jew, that's a good place for looking at what, like, what are the minimal requirements here? What what what's really expected of us? And can you give the 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 I guess end without going through all the sure sure thing, but to give uh, a, just a basic idea. Look, I can give I can give you the philosophical punchline. Okay, yeah. the philosophical punchline is as follows. The rabbis are surprisingly uninterested in the theological convictions, or at least the what you could call the fine-grained theological convictions of the prospective convert. And they are much more interested in the communal or national affiliation or affinity felt by the prospective convert. And as a philosopher thinking about that, one has to um, unpack why that may be. And there are a number of competing explanations, some of which I find really uncompelling. So you could use this datum, uh, the datum being the rabbis are surprisingly unconcerned with the theological convictions of prospective converts, right? You could use that datum to fuel an orthoprax uh, ideology where you say, oh, it turns out the rabbis don't really care what Jews believe, <laughs> right? As long as, you, as long as you're connected. And I just don't think that stands up. Um, it's, it's not as if the rabbis were uninterested in theology or uninterested in the fact that we really are serving God when we do the mitzvahs. And because uh, there is an agenda by some modern thinkers to kind of minimalize the extent to which the rabbis were committed to robust theological doctrines. And no, I think they were, they believed in God. They believed we're serving God through keeping the mitzvahs and that, and that serving God without kavanah and without belief and without is, is a, is a pale reflection, uh, 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 a, a kind of empty simulation of real lived religious service. So to say that, that this datum about converts is, is evidence for an orthoprax ideology according to which belief doesn't matter don't like that uh, account so so how else do we explain what's going on and i suggested and i think i can i think i can um corroborate this suggestion uh, in the sources that the rabbis had an interesting epistemology the epistemology so again epistemology is the study of belief and knowledge and faith and in a nutshell the punchline is this you cannot separate rational belief formation from um, your communal sociological setting, right? It's that's to say, learn. that's to say, um, if I was advising, uh, and I have, by the way, because of the unique position in which I find myself as a professor in the University of Haifa, I have found myself advising young Muslim Arabs 
about what's the most rational thing for them to do uh, if they're seeking out God or, you know, what, you know. Um, interestingly, and this is another datum, Judaism doesn't try necessarily to convert those people to Judaism. Right. Well, why not? If we believe we've got the truth again, I think it's because the rabbis had a very specific epistemology that recognizes that was what, what's rational for this young guy, Ahmed, who's in my office hours asking me about, you know, how should I serve God? and Is God real or whatever? What's rational for him? might not be the same as what's rational for for Yankala, uh, you know, or, you know, or, or you know, um, you know, replace name with, replace with, with, with a sufficiently generic name of, of, of any uh, sort of Jewish community like. Um, Yankala was my very Ashkenormative uh, <laughs> example, but, um, but it, it, again, I, I kept promising to give you in a nutshell, the punchline, it's something like, um, the rabbis recognized that, gosh, if if Ruth, right, Ruth in the Megillah, if she is indelibly connected to Naomi and Naomi's people and her community, then she's going to find herself in a situation where the most rational way to serve God is going to be through Judaism. However, if she wants to become a Jew because she had some kind of pyrotechnic vision right like a religious ecstasy well that's very nice religious ecstasy is great religious experiences are great i think they've got a real role to play in our religious lives but but you know somebody who who has uh, a vision of mount sinai on a monday might have a vision of vishnu on a wednesday because they're not they're not they're not necessarily um ingredients for a resilient faith right but if you are rooted in a community, uh, you might have the ingredients for a resilient faith. And then religious experience can play its role in strengthening that faith or whatever. But but, but that's the point. And that brings us back also to the Jewish undecided. My idea is, oh, well, hold on a minute. I'm not addressing an abstract audience and saying, oh, here are the reasons why you should believe in God. And here are the reasons why you should be a religious Jew. I'm I'm addressing a particular audience each reader is in their own, finds himself in their own unique situation, in their own network of friends and family and culture and community. And according to the rabbis, this is what I learned from uh, uh, the philosophy of Jewish conversion, let's say. According to the rabbis, what's rational for them isn't necessarily exactly the same as what's rational for people in a different um, social situational yeah. setting. Um and so that's, in, in a sense, the, the 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 jumping off point for the book. The book says, OK, now we know that what's rational for one person isn't necessarily what's rational for another person. What's rational for you, dear reader, you know, uh, if you are a member of the Jewish Undecided? Awesome. Great. Fantastic. All right. So it kind of makes sense, right? Why I start with conversion when I put it that way. Or yeah, and actually it. it flows directly into your chapter, The Unthinkable, which we're going to ask you about right yes. now. Yes. So your chapter titled The Unthinkable illustrates the rationality within certain aspects of irrationality in life, effectively laying the groundwork for your book's premises. Could you elaborate on the concepts presented in the chapter as it serves as a pivotal highlight of your book? Yeah, sure. Um, 
first of all, it, it's important to distinguish between two types of rationality. Um, there's what philosophers will call epistemic rationality and what they'll call practical rationality. And this, this distinction uh, has its roots all the way back in Aristotle. Epistemic rationality uh, governs what it's reasonable to believe in given the evidence that you have. Okay, so it would be irrational to believe in P unless you have this evidence, and it would be rational to believe in Q if you have this evidence. It's about apportioning beliefs to evidence and making sure that you're not believing uh, uh, more than the evidence licenses or less than the evidence licenses. That's epistemic rationality. But there's also something called practical rationality. Practical rationality is, is about which actions are most in your interest, given um, your preferences and what you know about the world around you, or at least believe about the world world around you. For example, if I'm really thirsty and I want to, and I'm hot, and I want a, and I want a cold drink, opening the fridge uh, is is a more reasonable option than opening the piano over there. Why? Because I believe that cold drinks are kept in the fridge, not in the piano. I'm hot and thirsty, and I believe that that uh, cold liquid will will uh, alleviate both my heat and my thirst. Right. So, so given what I believe and what I desire, um, practical rationality is going to say, "Well, open the fridge then." But you know, if I wanted the piano to sound louder uh, because I'm practicing and it, and it and I'm not hearing everything I want to hear, then opening the fridge, uh, you know, isn't going to be uh, mandated. But opening the piano will be mandated. So practical rationality is not about apportioning uh, beliefs to evidence. It says you're coming to the world with desires and beliefs, and practical rationality is about governing how you should act given those beliefs and those desires. Now, practical rationality and epistemic rationality can sometimes be in conflict with one another. And the example I give in the book is as follows. Someone puts a gun to your head and says, form the belief that two plus two equals five or I'll shoot you. And you have to imagine that they have like a brain reading device so they can really know what you're believing or whatever. In that bizarre scenario, um, it's overwhelmingly in your practical interests you know, given that you prefer to live than to die, we're assuming that if you prefer to live than to die in this moment, then it's overwhelmingly in your in your practical interests to form the belief that two plus two equals five. The problem is it can never be in your it can never be epistemically rational to form that belief. There is no evidence that justifies that belief. There's not not even a possible set of evidence that justifies the belief that two plus two equals five. So what are you to do? Well, it would be a real dilemma. Maybe you'd, you'd try and hire a hypnotist or you'd you'd take magic mushrooms. I don't know what it would be that could maybe help you form this false belief. But in that situation, the practically rational thing to do is to form an epistemically irrational belief. It's just interesting as a case study for how the two things come in conflict. Don't get me wrong. I'm not then going to suggest later on that... Uh, religious belief is epistemically irrational, but hey, you know, you should do it anyway because you've got a gun to your head. No. But what I might say is this, the epistemic grounds for any one religion are not overwhelming. There's, there's not, there's also not overwhelmingly good reason to think that Judaism is false. 
But I don't think there's overwhelming evidence to persuade a, a neutral bystander uh, that Judaism is certainly true. Um, but it might well be overwhelmingly in your practical interests uh, to live in hope uh, that Judaism is true and to act accordingly. And, and in a sense, that's what I want to try and do in the book. Now, you asked me what role unthinkability plays and this is all backgrounds to that and sorry to go on and on guys i'm not giving you much time to interrogate me um um unthinkability is 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 a a notion that i have developed in conversation with other philosophers like harry frankfurt and bernard williams and let me put it as follows a proposition is unthinkable to you if you find yourself somehow unable to factor it in to your practical deliberations, this is what Frankfurt calls a volitional necessity. And he'll gives, he gives examples like this. You, you're holding a gun and that means you could shoot an innocent child. You really could, but you couldn't bring yourself to do it, right? there's a sense in which you could do it. You physically could, you metaphysically could, you logically could, but there's a kind of psychological could here where you, I just couldn't bring myself to do that, right? And that's an interesting type of could or couldn't that Frankfurt calls volitional necessity. I say that, that it's unthinkable to you that you'd press the trigger. Well, clearly it's not literally unthinkable because we're thinking about you doing it now right but it's just not the sort of thing you could really bring yourself to do psychologically or um i suppose you'd have to undergo massive changes before that was uh, thinkable so you'd have to become a psychopathic homicide you know yeah homicidal freak before before, uh, before that would become uh, thinkable to you uh examples i give uh in the book of of unthinkable uh, courses of action uh, you have a loved one who um, needs a heart transplant and you want to do anything you can to help this loved one get the transplant they need. But one thing you won't do is kill an innocent bystander to harvest their organ. Now, you know that that could help, but it's just not one of the things you factor into your practical deliberations. It's just not on the agenda. It's unthinkable. OK, um, solipsism. Solipsism is the philosophical view according to which nobody exists apart from you everybody else in the universe is just a figment of your imagination you are the only being that is conscious and real as a person that's a philosophical thesis that i don't think anybody can can refute um um without doubt okay but none of us really factor that possibility into our practical deliberations as we're thinking about how to treat others or navigate the world around us in the philosophy seminar room Right. When we're thinking philosophically and everyone should spend time thinking philosophically, when we do that, solipsism is something we entertain. OK, because it's an interesting thesis and let's look at it. But you don't take it with you into the street outside and because it's unthinkable. OK. And my argument in the book is that for people who are firmly embedded in the Jewish world in one way or another, Christianity is unthinkable. Islam is unthinkable. Hinduism is unthinkable. And I think the reason they're unthinkable is good. They're unthinkable because, you know, you don't reason in a vacuum. 
it's not possible to reason in a vacuum. I, I kind of sometimes wish we could, because I recognize that would be the most rational way to be, but it's not possible, ultimately. We reason using a language. I reason most using English and Hebrew, because those are languages I speak. Had I been raised differently, I'd be reasoning in French or Spanish, but I don't have a choice about that. I was born in a certain situation. I was raised in a certain way. I have associations. I, you know, I can try and mitigate the fact that you know, I I have implicit biases, and I have, but but I can only mitigate them to a degree. I will always be thinking from a perspective, and more than that, the perspective that I think from provides me with multiple benefits that are meaningful to my having a flourishing life. For instance, I have a wife, I have a family, I have a community, I have you know, I have all these things that add to the value of my life. Now, if I were to convert to Christianity my mum would kill me, right? I'd, I'd have to get divorced. Uh, I don't know what would happen with our kids. It'd be a terrible custody battle. Those are massive costs, okay? They really are massive costs. Now, it would be close-minded of me to say that because of those costs, I'm not even going to consider the possibility of Christianity. No, I consider the possibility. I consider it in the, in the philosophy seminar room where I consider solipsism too. But because of the ways in which my life is is calibrated, I will only be able to find Christianity thinkable if when I'm in this philosophy seminar room, you provide me with an overwhelming amount of evidence that it's true. If you provide me with an overwhelming amount of evidence that something unthinkable is true, then it becomes thinkable. And then you really do have to factor it in, right, to your to your everyday deliberations. But Without um, an overwhelming amount of evidence, the Jew simply isn't practically, uh, sorry, the Jew simply isn't um, mandated by practical rationality to take Christianity any more seriously as a hypothesis than solipsism. Sure, it's interesting, you know, we'll think about it, but like, is it going to affect my practical deliberations from day to day? No, not unless you give me an overwhelming amount of evidence, because that's a very costly hypothesis if it's true. Okay. The same would apply and, to a Christian towards Judaism. Absolutely. And and it's easier for a Jew to say this because Judaism doesn't demand that the Christian becomes a Jew. Now, it's a little bit more tricky than that, because you could say, yeah, but Christianity is idolatry. And even for the, the, the Sheva Mitzvahs, B'nai Noach, et cetera, et cetera. That's a debate we could have another time. I would I would point to an, an interesting passage in Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs was a great influence over me, he was my teacher and mentor and, and in, in his book, One People mentions the Gemara in Masechet Chulin that talks about Ofdei Avodah Zorah outside of the land of Israel. And it says that you don't really treat them as if they're mamash Ofdei Avodah Zorah, which would mean, you know, you're not supposed to save their lives. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to enter into um, um, business arrangements with them. You, you, you can't, you, you know, very restrictive um, um, set of obligations would be in play uh, between you and a real idolater. Says the Gemara and Chulin, these considerations don't really apply to Avdeh um, Vodazara, idolaters outside of Israel, and according to some authorities, even inside Israel, Bizman Hazer in these days, right? Um, because, says the Gemara, Min Hagavotehem Biyadehem, which which Rabbi Sachs translates beautifully because it's an idiom. Okay, literally, it means that the, the, the traditions of their fathers are in their hands. Rabbi Sachs translates it beautifully, idiomatically, as they're victims of cultural coercion. They, 
given where they are culturally, you can't really expect them not to be of their vodazora. It's, like it's like a Tinochtinish bar. It's exactly like a Tinochtinish bar. And therefore, you can't really say, because this is another philosophical doctrine that's in the background of my book, which I really should have articulated more explicitly. I think it is there uh, somewhere, but I, I should have put more emphasis on it. If a God exists who is worthy of our worship, then that God must be both good and reasonable. Okay. Now, if a good and reasonable God exists, such a God cannot condition our salvation upon believing or doing things which are practically irrational for us to believe or do, especially if the reason they're practically irrational for us to believe or do is because of how we were born. It's nothing, it's not our fault. You know, I was born Jewish and given all of these, you know, and, and that of the, that that Hindu was born a Hindu. And they were put in a situation where to convert, to let, let's say, for the sake of argument that, you know, Islam is the true religion. But but we were put in a situation where it wasn't rational for us to convert to Islam without overwhelming evidence. And we've never seen any overwhelming evidence that Islam is true. Now, if 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 the God of Islam is truly good and reasonable, he can't condition our salvation on that. Right. Uh, and if he isn't good and reasonable, then he's not worthy of our worship to begin with. Right. <laughs> Send me to hell and I'll be with I'll be in hell happily with Rashi and Rambam and all these other amazing people. Right. And not serving this brute of a God who conditions our salvation on being completely irrational. Right. But if a good and reasonable God exists and Judaism is true, then God really could be a bit annoyed with me and you two for not throwing ourselves full-heartedly into Judaism because we were born in a situation where that wasn't unthinkable. Mm. So in a sense, yes, the idea is uh, um, a Christian may be best uh, advised from just pure from the cold calculations of practical rationality to throw their, their bets behind one form or other of Christianity. And the Muslim might be best um, uh, justified from pure rationality. To, maybe, right? It depends, right? Because if it turns out that the odds of Christianity being true are, are like zero, because it turns out that Christology is conceptually incoherent, or if it turns out that, you know, the Quran makes conceptually incoherent statements, you know, it could be that, no, they're, they're, they're best they're most my book isn't about christianity or islam right you'd have to look into that but certainly for the jew um <clears throat> my argument is that they have good reason to find all of the other religions unthinkable but judaism at least they need to give a hearing to and if um judaism doesn't isn't found to be overwhelmingly unlikely their best bet in a kind of pascal's wager type um rationale is to is to throw themselves into Judaism as best they can under some understanding or other of what that means and just to finish the thought Pascal is a key figure in this book because I think what was interesting for me was after thinking about conversion and after thinking about my own background in that kind of lapsed orthodoxy my thought was oh wow Pascal's wager can easily be dismissed if it's addressing a general audience, 
because there are so many different religions to choose between. Why should I bet on one religion rather than, than another? Pascal's wager is, you know, you should rather be Catholic than atheist because what have you got to lose? Well, you've got lots to lose because maybe Islam is true or Hinduism is true or Judaism is true or Protestantism is true. That's called the many gods objection to Pascal's wager. But then I figured, hold on a minute, though. If you're not addressing a universal audience, you're you're addressing an audience that is situated in a particular social context. It might be the case that for them, oh, my goodness. All of the other religions other than Judaism are rationally treated as unthinkable. They can be discounted until you find an overwhelming amount of evidence in their favor. And we haven't found that. So in the meantime, they're just put to one side. And it's just Judaism and atheism for these guys. For the Jewish undecided, that's the choice. right? Judaism or like cult either religious Judaism or cultural Judaism. Those are basically the only, the only choices open to these guys. And then I think Pascal's wager becomes a much more compelling. It's in that context that Pascal's wager becomes a much more compelling argument. Two things. Um... This chapter, when I read it, I thought this was brilliant in terms of very simply dismantling the whole idea of biblical criticism, because biblical criticism, there are some things that, you know, make you like say, oh, you know that. But but there is no over overwhelming evidence whatsoever within biblical criticism. Absolutely. And based on the thesis that you provided, it would take an enormous amount of evidence from biblical criticism to really, really shake anyone's faith. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. If you're if you if you are already situated with it, so so the book is addressed to people who aren't already necessarily religiously committed, right? But if you are already religiously committed and you have good reason for so being committed, right, then then you have to calibrate the the, the algorithms of practical rationality differently. It turns out, wow, if you want to convince me. It's like in the Gemara, if you want to take something away from somebody, the burden of proof's on you. Yeah. You want to convince me that this book, which I have good reason through the Masorah to treat as a divine thing, if you want to, it's a motley patchwork quilt of human scraps of whatever. You want to prove that to me? Fine. You need to bring me a lot of evidence, right? The evidential, so it's about calibrating evidential burdens. I And I agree with you, um, you know, if if we were addressing culturally detached agnostics, right, maybe the evidence for um, biblical criticism would be more compelling. But if you're addressing people who are not culturally attached agnostics, but like culturally Jewish religious people, then it's reasonable for them to demand more evidence before they're convinced of such a shocking conclusion. Like the beginning of your chapter when you talked about someone who has a wife and someone and someone co comes and accuses your wife of cheating on you. Yeah. If you are not married to her, right, then yeah. someone can say, you know, she cheated on him instead of you. Right. Yeah. So the level of evidence for you to be convinced of that is going to be a lot less than when you are her husband. Absolutely. Now. There's a philosophical uh, minefield over here. Um, there's one group of epistemologists who say that, you know, your stake in the matter, how interested you are, how much you have to lose, shouldn't impinge upon um, 
how much evidence justifies a claim because these are non-epistemic considerations and there's another group of epistemologists who say no 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 they should impinge and it's called pragmatic encroachment upon epistemology it's a big debate but actually i want to sidestep that entire issue by distinguishing epistemic rationality for practical from practical rationality and the idea is okay fine the evidence looked at detachedly may favor the thesis that my wife's cheating on me but practical rationality makes a demand of me too because because my 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 marriage really is giving me a lot of good and therefore i might i might owe it to myself or to my wife or whatever that I don't act on this evidence until I have more of it. And it's just not about epistemology anymore. It's about practical rationality. One way or the other, it seems like I am right to, re to require more evidence than a, than, a, than a detached bystander before I take seriously the accusation, God forbid, that my wife is cheating on me. Although running along that example when i'm thinking about it right now that still might um kind of the accusation might change the the relationship to a certain extent yeah, or to say differently to say differently a person might say i don't accept all the evidence of abc against judaism but but maybe that does kind of it doesn't do anything like, you know, make him leave, but it it kind of... It sows the seeds of doubt, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. And it starts to like, oh, you know what I mean? And it starts, no to, doubt. It starts to chip away. No doubt. And that's absolutely true. And and by the way, you know, and by the way, as you bring me more and more evidence, and it chips away more and more. What was once unthinkable will become thinkable. I say, oh, she's cheating on me. Like, and, and God forbid, <clears throat> there may be times, and this is very tough, there may be times where where you start to think that maybe there's something to this evidence, but you better act as if you don't believe it because you hope that you'll be vindicated by like new evidence downstream. Mm -hmm. And if you if your wife suspects you of doubting, that might hurt your relationship. So you act as if you don't doubt when you really do doubt, you know, Practical rationality can demand lots of things of us, difficult things of us sometimes, right? You know? So I'm not pretending that's a, a hunkadory situation to be in when you're confronted with a, a, a small amount of evidence, God forbid, that your wife is cheating on you. But I but I am suggesting that that um despite the damage it might do to your relationship, despite it's it's sowing the seeds of doubt, you are right to resist a small amount of evidence and to wait for more evidence um, 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 because you are not detached and you're not a bystander, you, you're, you're a spouse. Right, and uh, people have this mistaken notion that they think that they think that religion has to be approached with um, like, like me, okay, if you're coming from the outside, like you said, someone who mm. has no ties, Right. Mm. So they have to make a decision based on really a clean slate. Fine. Mm -hmm. But there's this mistaken notion that I've been noticing increasingly is that there's a confusion, I would say, that people think that the correct, even if they're already married into Judaism to a sense, no, but but decisions have to be completely based on, you know, just argument um, proofs or just yeah. 
and they're not understanding that that's not, you know, and the example of the husband and the wife, I thought was just a great illustration of why, no, that's not necessarily the most rational way. Good, good. That's not, I, I'm, I'm... not the way it really works. Yeah, and please, do you see that? You know, like in, in what I call the philosophy seminar room, when we're doing philosophy, we try our hardest to free ourselves from what I call our epistemic roots, to free ourselves from any perspective and occupy what Thomas Nagel calls the view from nowhere, trying to see things as it... But it's but it but that's a myth. It's something we try to achieve in the in in the ivory tower of philosophy. But in our day to day life, there's no such thing as reasoning from nowhere, and there can't be. We we reason from the situations in which we find ourselves, and and for each person, that's different. And and this book is, in a sense, a long meditation upon the ramifications of that fact. Right. Uh, and Groundbreaking chapter. I highly suggest anyone listening. Um, that uh, the, the book in general, but this chapter in particular, um, I think uh, it, it it just opens up the mind uh, to Thank think you. in a way that we've not been accustomed, but it's also really simple. That's the beauty of it. And I hope so. Thank I've you. I've come to notice that over the years that sometimes the, the answers are just staring us right in the face, but sometimes we need someone to come and really formulate it in a way yeah. that fits. So, yeah, it's just about looking at something in a new way. And then when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah. Of course, I always knew that. <laughs> okay, so after this chapter, you go into um, many, many chapters, going through different proofs and different argumentations for God, back and forth, Kuzri principle, it's a, it's a big, um, and then you do with the problem of evil. And I'm mentioning this because I want to let the viewers know how the book goes. Yeah, and yeah. so in, in, in a nutshell, having said, look, you're in a position, dear reader, where really you should be choosing between like continued cultural affiliation or religious Judaism. And then I, I try to say, well, how much evidence do you need before it's worth it's worth placing your bet on the religious side? And I try to give evidence, you know, uh, and I don't think the evidence needs to be overwhelming. That's what the Christian would need to do or the Muslim or, the, you know, but some evidence to make it plausible. And uh, and therefore, I try to provide evidence that that God really does exist, because if it's plausible that God exists, then the Jew in this situation might be more um, uh, enticed, so to speak, to bet on religiosity. And then once we've established that it's plausible that God exists, how plausible is it that kind of Orthodox Judaism in some construal or other or other or other of what that means uh reflects god's will for us as jews and i tried to bring evidence like you said the kuzari argument kind of re retooled in certain ways but but um recognizable nonetheless is part of that right and then as th as that section closes you um you begin to explore various art sorry um as that section closes you de delve into the fundamental question of what is religiosity in this chapter and the, and the subsequent ones, you redefine the term religious and outline three specific criteria for identifying a religious person. Could you share your philosophy regarding these criteria? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, and just to say a little bit more about the context in which this question arises in the book is that you might say, okay, you've convinced me, Sam, like, halavai, like, God, you know, please God, this, this should be the experience of some readers. Okay, you convinced me, Sam. Given the way I've been raised, given where I am, the most reasonable thing to do would be to kind of bet on Jewish religiosity. But the thing is, 
I still don't believe it. And because I don't believe it, even though I've recognized it would be good if I could believe it, I'm worried that if I live a religious life now, I'd be living as a fraud. It would be inauthentic. Um, and maybe I'm, I'd, I'd try and kind of hypnotize, hypnotize myself that it's true, but surely that's like deeply irrational to try and hypnotize yourself that something's true when you, you don't really, uh, you know, believe that it's true. And, and that's why I, I start to address this question. Well, hold on, hold on a second. What does religiosity really demand from us? And would it be inauthentic for you in this situation to call yourself religious? And I try to argue that it actually isn't inauthentic for a person who is far from certain that their religion is true, but who has recognized they have reason to hope it's true and they have some evidence that it's true, perhaps not enough to justify belief, certainly not enough to justify certainty. Is Are those enough ingredients for a truly authentic religiosity? And I argue, yes, because of what I uh, of what I think religion actually is. Um, many philosophers have tried to define religion. It's a perennial question in the philosophy of religion, how to define religion. I say perennial, but actually for the last 50 to 70, 70 to 50 years, um, it hadn't been discussed very much because most philosophers have decided it just wasn't possible to define it because every definition that people had given, Kant, Durkheim, Rudolf Otto, um had like been destroyed by 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 opponents and critics so people say oh well, it's just not something we can define yeah in this book i do try to define at least religiosity and um this ch these chapters of this book spurned a publication i, I later published a definition of re religion religion in uh, oxford studies in philosophy of religion if people are interested in seeing um in a nutshell, I say religiosity has three main ingredients. One is cultural affiliation or some other sort of affiliation to a community, a community that organizes itself around set religion. The reason in a nutshell for thinking that that's an essential ingredient of religiosity is my own conviction that religion is a sociological phenomenon. And therefore, um, if you had only one person, you don't have a sociological phenomenon yet. Uh, a person on a mountain who who has all sorts of theological convictions isn't a guru until there are people following him, right? And even if you are all alone, you're the last human on earth, um, your religion is only really a religion in a recognizable sense if, if, it, if at least you wished that other people could follow it, if you had some desire for community. So I think that, that community is one of the essential ingredients. And what's interesting to, to note is the Jewish undecided already have that. They come with that already. That's what we want to make sure the convert has when they convert to Judaism. They've got that. So ingredient number one, you've got, okay? Ingredient number two, I'll come back to. That's the belief or faith part, which might trip people up. You say, oh yeah, but it's, it's because I don't believe that I'm not religious. So I'll come back to that. The third ingredient is imagination. And this is really important. Belief alone doesn't make a person religious because religiosity is more than just a system of beliefs. It's about how you act in this world. And therefore you can, I hate to use this language, but I can't think of better language. You can believe in God and be a jerk, mm -hmm. right? You, you can, and you can believe in 
you can believe in the 13 Ikrim of the Rambam and still not act as if you do. Like the Ramban says, you can be a naval birshuta Torah. You can be like a loathsome person uh, who who technically lives within the, the Daladamot of Halakha, who lives, you know, a halachically scrupulous life uh, in, in, in some kind of formal sense. So what is it that's going to that's going to take a person who already believes and kind of squeeze out that religiosity in them? And I argue that it has a lot to do with imagination. Now, imagination doesn't always mean making stuff up. Imagination doesn't always mean leaving stuff which isn't true, like pretending that something that isn't true is true. To see this in action, you need to go back to medieval Jewish philosophy. I don't, I don't put this in the the, the book, but you, you guys, being Maimonideans, will know that in the Mornavuchim, the Rambam speaks aspiring, a great deal. Aspiring Maimonideans, aspiring Maimonideans. Well, we should all be in some sense. But in the in the third chelak in particular of the Mornavuchim, the Rambam distinguishes between the koach hasechel and the koach hadimayon, the the intellectual faculty and the faculty of imagination, and both of them are key. To prophecy, no less, right? He says the sage has a heightened uh, intellectual capacity. The politician, he says, has a heightened imaginative faculty. The prophet has both, right? A heightened intellectual and imaginative faculty. Well, why do you need imagination if, if you've got only true beliefs? Shouldn't, shouldn't the intellectual faculty be enough? No, it's not enough because belief is not sufficiently absorbing. And the idea is something like this, right? It's Ben and Bensi. I look at you, you know, over my Zoom camera and I see two human beings. I believe that you are B'Tselem Elohim. But do I experience you as creatures in the image of God? Maybe not, right? That's That requires work. I need to try to experience you through the prism of my beliefs, Right now, it's very hard to explain what I'm doing here without using the kafad de mayon. I need to experience you, ketzelem right? Um, which it, the kafad de mayon, de mayon, imagination, right? I'm, I have to, I have to engage my imagination to see the world aright, right? And this is how I understand Rav Hirsch on um, on Pasha Yitro when he describes the commandment to believe that God exists. Ravosh says, no, the first commandment of the Decalogue of the Asertity brought is not to merely to believe that God exists. It's to experience God as your God, to experience every breath as a gift from God. See how many times I'm using the word as, right, which is the Kafa Dimayon, to experience yourself as a creature of God, to experience every breath you breathe as a gift from God. Um, that's an imaginative endeavor. So more than believing that God exists, you also have to make believe that God exists. You have to engage your imagination with the belief, right? And religions traditionally do that through stories, symbolic landscapes, rituals rich in symbolism. Re religion seeks to engage the imagination of the religious person. And I really believe that in those moments in which I succeed in experiencing the world as godly, in those moments, it's very hard to be a jerk. You can believe that God exists and be a horrible person. But if I experience another person under the human being as a creature of God Almighty, in that moment, I couldn't mistreat them, I think. Right. And, and, and that's what religiosity demands. Now, you can't choose what to believe. 
but you can choose what to engage your imagination with. So to say, oh, it's inauthentic. Of No, it's not inauthentic. It's what game do you choose to play, right? What symbols do you choose to engage your imagination with? So ingredient one and ingredient three of religiosity, you can, you know, I think the Jewish undecided can get on board with straight away. The first one they have already, right? They are members of a community. The third one isn't asking you to believe anything. It's just asking you to engage your imagination with a particular symbolic landscape, a particular way of looking at the world. Great. The second ingredient could be the obstacle. This is the one where most people think, oh, yeah, but you need to believe stuff, right? A religion has a canon of like axioms that you have to believe. And if you don't believe them, you can't be called religious. And here I get off the boat and say, no, I don't actually think religions demand that. Religions demand faith rather than belief. And here I make this big distinction between faith and belief. I've written an, an article that just came out in Religious Studies. It's uh, open access if people are interested. It's called uh, Amen to Dat. Uh, and it's about Amuna and Dat, right? I got a smile from Ben Secret. That's because it's the title's a bit of a play on words, right? Amen to Dat. And it's about Amuna and Dat. And um, I argue that actually the Hebrew Bible doesn't have a word for belief. It only has a word for faith. Um, it has the notion of believing because people say things to themselves or think things in their hearts. But saying and thinking, amira and chashiva, uh, are not words that exclusively mean believing. They're borrowed, right, to, to, to describe somebody believing stuff. But it does have a word. The Hebrew Bible does have a word for having faith that something is true. And that word is imunah. Um, what, what does it mean to have faith that something is true? In a nutshell, to have faith that something is true is to think that there's a non-zero possibility that it's true. But you can't have faith that something's true if you know for sure it's false. It's just not possible. You can have faith that something's true if you think it's possibly true. And you also need to want it to be true. And my there's a little bit more, but that's enough for our purposes. And my basic argument is, is well, if you've, if you've recognized that it's in your interest to take this bet, then you do want it to be true. Because what a waste if it turns out not to be true. So you do want it to be true. And if you're taking the bet, the bet that this book has laid out for you, you're you're clearly taking it because you think there's enough reason to think that it's possible. So you've already got all of the ingredients of faith. To take the bet is to take a leap of faith. You have faith. And I think that religious action doesn't communicate to the world that you have belief in Judaism. It communicates to the world that you have faith in Judaism and you do if you've taken the bet. So that's that's the basic, uh, you know, ending of, of of the book. Don't think you're being disingenuous um, by throwing yourself full heartedly into a religion that you don't have certainty uh, for, because because I don't think Judaism demands certainty. Certainty would be lovely, uh, but Judaism demands much less. It demands everyone now. I think even uh, uh, doesn't mean certainty. Now, interestingly, this is where I might not be so Maimonidean. Maimonides himself may have thought that at least for some of the axioms, you can achieve certainty. But because uh, he thought there were certain demonstrations that prove beyond doubt that God exists and v'chulei v'chulei. For the first few. The first few. That's yeah, right. The first, the first few. few. You're referring to the first few. Okay. That's right. Now, interestingly, I actually think the evidence for God's existence is more compelling than the evidence that Judaism is true. So I could I could agree with him. Right. 
But we we also, and there's a very, very well-written forward to the book by my friend, Professor Daniel Reinhold, who's the Dean of REITs at Yeshiva University. He, normally I skip the forwards of books. I, I might read this forward after you've read the book, but I certainly wouldn't skip it because I really think it's very, very well-written piece. And he explains that, you know, we are not living in the time of Maimonides. And therefore, to philosophize in the 21st century is not the same thing as philosophizing in 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 um, the milieu of Aristotelian physics. And I'm trying to fo follow the mandate of the Rambam, which is to use the best science and philosophy of the age to articulate the faith. If I believe that Aristotelian physics was 100 percent correct in its description of the universe below the moon, then yeah, maybe we'd have demonstrations of the cosmological argument. But I, do you really think the Rambam would go with Aristotelian physics today? No, no. we're actually not a chance in it, right? So we're actually right. going to be, so, making, a, be making a podcast regarding um, how to fit uh, Maimonidean cosmology in today's science from the perspective that it doesn't. That, that the cosmology is outdated. So how would, apply, yeah. how would we apply what we have to do. structure into today's... Right. Yeah, so we're going to be addressing that. Because it also it also affects how we view prophecy also. Yes, you know, so. absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's key. And it's what Rambam would call upon us to do, right? Uh, you know, uh, because the physics is no longer, you know, no longer says what it did. And, and, and we just do the best given, given the intellectual resources available to us at a given time. And the physics of today is subject to, to revision, you know, and maybe in 500 years time, you know, Jewish theologians will, will have to, you know, work again. So, so um, the reason I got into this this detour is because no, I, I admit that the Rambam may have thought that at least for some of the Ikarim, certainty is what we're looking for. I happen to think that the weight of Jewish tradition doesn't demand that, and that that perhaps that's not philosophically sustainable, Bismanazer, in these days. And it's okay because, as I understand Emunah. Emuna is what you have when you deeply desire that something should be true and you have sufficient evidence to hope reasonably that it is. And if you've got at least that, then you have the ingredients for Emuna. For some of the Ikarim, I think I've got more evidence. For some of the Ikarim, I've got less evidence. For some of them, you know, I've got full-flown belief as well as faith. For some of them, I just have faith, but that's enough. It's like how Rabbi Sachs defined uh, faith is, is yeah, it's it's the courage to live with uncertainty. Absolutely. And and Absolutely. a lot of people think blind faith is like, no, you just jump right in. Um, the thing is, I don't even like the, to use the word faith because I don't believe that. I think that's a very Christian word when it yeah. comes to Muna, um, yeah. maybe even Breslov. But in, in I think in classical Judaism. Christian, maybe even Breslov. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in, in classical Judaism, it really, I would say the best translation is steadfastness or loyalty. Lovely, okay. lovely. So, yeah, so, that's right. So, so like the Torah doesn't require us, there's no commandment to Good. for that. It actually commands us to have knowledge of God. And knowledge, yeah. like you mentioned, is is intimacy, right? It's, it's, that's right. It's to actually continuously try to, under like a relationship, continuously right. rest and try to understand more and more and dig deeper. You might not, you might not even have the evidence at the end. Uh, yeah. that you do, but but that that journey I, that, that process is really what what is demanded of us 
I entirely agree. The only reason I use faith in a lot of my writing is because I'm trying to I'm trying to shake people of the use of belief, right? Uh, no. Which which I think is also wrong. Uh, but but I I your critique of the use of faith is it resonates with me. Yes, it's emunah that I'm interested in, and emunah could could very well be described as as steadfastness, resilience. You know, I think it also has uh, an affective. Um, dimension you don't say amen to something you want to be false so it also has a kind of like um an evaluative um, um dimension um and it's interesting you know i've got a few pieces if people are interested i try to keep um my website updated with all my academic papers um it's samlebens.com and then there's an academic papers place but a number of my pieces have recently have been exploring what I think Jewish epistemology amounts to. And, and Western epistemology is very much about the bridge from belief to knowledge. Jewish yeah. epistemology is all about the, the, the bridge from emunah to dat. But emunah isn't belief and dat isn't knowledge. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, right? it's easy to mistake Jewish epistemology for Western epistemology. They're different. Um, and it's interesting to think about how. And I wanted to also respond to what you said about the imagination mm. that is exactly why why avodah zarah is so powerful even today because it's really the same uh, it's the other side of the coin right yeah. because yeah. Where, where you can find this great emunah you can also fall into the wrong ideas absolutely when you use when you use your imagination in the service of truth right then you get like uh, sincere and authentic religiosity. When you use your imagination in the service of Sheker, right, it's very, very powerful. It's it's a Vodazora, but it's also politically on both sides of the, the spectrum. I don't want to get into party politics, but it's popularism, right? Yeah. Where you you sell a narrative to people and you inflame their passions, right? The the imagination does that. Right, and it's imagination in the service of Sheker. It's it's a it's a very very powerful uh, human faculty. What makes it so powerful is <clears throat> sometimes the line is blurred because you can have religious superstition and right. rituals that you're doing that are actually based in Sheker, but you're right. you you've kind of justified them because you know you see it as they're in the service of God. They're the same Shemayim or, or exactly. yes, they're they're kind of truth adjacent falsehoods. I like the way you phrase things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're some of the most dangerous falsehoods, right? Yeah, because they're so close to the truth. Absolutely. Right. This book is um, extremely engaging, thoughtful, thought provoking, well written. Um, and I, by the way, are you working on another project? I'm working on a number of things. I think in the I think in the immediate short term, I'm going to try and write a book on um, on chosenness on on the Jewish election, uh, the election. That's the way. That's the Christian term for like being chosen. And uh, but in the in the in the longer term, I I would actually like to write a book on Jewish epistemology on emunah and dat and and you know, um, not that it hasn't been done before. Sefer emunot v'deot, right? But um, <laughs> We need a modern day. Uh... A modern day. <laughs> um, but uh, no, really, it's an it's an it's a very engaging read. We highly suggest it. Um, I think that it's imp it's an, I think that everyone can gain something from this book one way or another. 
um, that it's that kind of book. It's a book where it's universal. Kind of, it's universal. It's no matter who you, you are and where you stand, there is something to gain here. Um, Thank so, you. Uh, and also stuff to disagree with and that's okay right you know you won't agree that's with everything you read in it that's right life. and and hopefully you'll enjoy that aspect too you know. yes um, and um we thank, thank you, so you. Much for thank coming you. on thank you this thank you for the time thank you very Don't much it's it been again. a great pleasure talking to you guys and and uh, you know, you work in an ivory tower, just writing stuff, and you don't know if people are reading, engaging, and to know that you guys are interested in this stuff, and that you're interviewing all sorts of interesting people and disseminating the conversation and bringing more people into it. You should be, um, you should be Matsliach in in uh, in your continued uh, efforts to widen this conversation. You know, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, too. Well, too. Take well, care. Too. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys